You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, I'm Jim Del Rosso, a dermatologist from Las Vegas, Nevada, and we're here at the Fall Clinical Dermatology at the Win, and we have the Derms and Condition podcast, which this is number 13. So we've had, I think, a very successful year with these particular podcasts, which we'll talk a little, about, a little bit more about later. But before we get started, I want to mention, now let's pause for a message from our advertiser. Bristol-Myers Squibb is exploring trailblazing research in technology which starts with illuminating the role of TIC2 in psoriasis. Start exploring the TIC2 pathway by visiting www.tic2.com. That's spelled www.tyk2.com. So it's a pleasure to have today guy that I have tremendous respect for, that I've known for quite some time, that's well known in dermatology, primarily in the area of psoriasis, but certainly some other areas, and that's Bruce Grober. So, Bruce, it's great to have you here today. So we'll, Thank you. It's my pleasure. I know you're going to elucidate people on this area. So, let's talk about psoriasis and really what's happened with the advances over time, and on one of the uh, one of the calls I had with David Cohen that we had with the podcast, he made the statement that there's been a difference in the progress between atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. He said, with the development of biologic treatment, the first agent that came out was a big jump that obviously had a tremendous efficacy and safety, etc. But with psoriasis, it was a slower development from the first agents that we had that have marched along to different mechanisms of action. I'd like to get your perception of that. Right, exactly. You know, when I started uh, seeing patients as my own uh, dermatologist, not in residency, I was uh, impressed with Enbrel and Raptiva and Amaviv, but by any measure, um, over the years, we've, we've come to use more advanced medications, increasingly more effective, um, more targeted, um, and the most important aspect of this is the more advanced the drugs have become, they haven't compromised with regard to safety. Um, so we've gotten increased efficacy, and in my opinion, you know, better safety and more convenient dosing. So incrementally, over many, many developments, over about two decades, um, there's been steady improvement, almost as if, you know, what you think is good this year, well, just wait till next year, was right. always the thought process. Whereas atopic dermatitis, I understand what, what David is saying, um, you know, the first biologic out is a very impressive drug, and um, it's going to be hard. And to very safe. And very overall. safe. And, and it's, it's going to be hard to see that kind of evolution in atopic dermatitis th therapies that we saw over the psoriasis timeline. So the advances in psoriasis, I think, have uh, been related to advances in the basic science to look at the mechanisms of action of these different agents that target more specifically certain receptors or cytokines that lead to the manifestations of psoriasis. In fact, the initial drugs that were developed for psoriasis, the TNF inhibitors, which were very successful, um, were developed for other disease states, like rheumatoid arthritis um, and, and, and gastrointestinal diseases. And then all of a sudden, the newer drugs, really beginning with ustekinumab, Stelora, were developed solely for psoriasis, and that became a trend, um, where the first indication 
for a drug was a psoriasis indication. And then other indications fell behind that. So that was a flipping of the equation um, that made me feel very happy that, that uh, companies saw psoriasis as an important first step in developing a new medication. So we've had the advances with these injectable biologics, but in the wings, we've always had certain oral agents that we use that are approved, methotrexate, cyclosporin, that have their benefits and certainly their baggage. But now that we're getting into this world of agenis kinase inhibition, we have oral drugs that are being developed. And certainly there are differences. They're not all created equal. There are differences between them. But one of the areas that I think is people have questions about, and I know I do, is with inhibiting TIC2 as compared to the other Janus kinase inhibitors. So can you talk about some of the things that you think are important about TIC2 as a, as a pathway and what might be different in terms of the inhibition of TIC2? Firstly, you know, as long as I've been um, working with JAK inhibitors, the goal has always been very to be selective, right? That's every company that makes a JAK inhibitor always say, we are very selective. We only hit this JAK kinase or we only hit these two. Um, but it was all, not always realized to be the, the case that early JAK inhibitors were actually, as I say, more promiscuous. They, they would block a bunch of the family members, and in so doing, no doubt they got efficacy out of the drug, but there would be safety concerns because it's clear that touching the JAK 1 through 3 family creates greater risk for patients. So the TIC2 inhibitory mechanism um, became attractive because if you knock out TIC2's ability, um, to, to signal, then you, you essentially can just target psoriasis pathophysiology because downstream of TIC2 are the pathways for IL-12, 23, and interferon. And if you could leave alone the other JAK kinases, you could still get good psoriasis efficacy. Um, and lo and behold, the, the studies of decravacitinib, which is really the, the paradigm of TIC2 inhibition, displayed that very selective inhibition of TIC2 without touching JAK1 through 3 gives efficacy in psoriasis that's really measurably good, beats placebo, beats a premolast in a head-to-head, um, but also leaves out the other activities that blocking JAK kinase might come along with, such as um, laboratory monitoring. It appears that um, from these studies, that venous, venous thromboembolism, arterial thromboembolism, are not a part of its, of its adverse event profile. Lipid abnormalities, I it think, appears they're not. Them. If you look at the laboratory uh, readouts from studies in psoriasis and also psoriatic arthritis, um, there doesn't seem to be any measurable difference between what's happening with the patients getting TIC2 and patients getting a premolas and, and a placebo. It's, it seems to be a very comparable laboratory profiles, which makes me believe, and I'm only speaking for myself, but um, laboratory monitoring for decravacitinib um, is likely not required, um, like it might be for another JAK inhibitor. Now we'll see what happens with further data, but you know, that's certainly promising. So I'm going to ask you to hold a second, and now let's pause for a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb is exploring trailblazing research and technology, which starts with illuminating the role of TIC2 in psoriasis. Start exploring the TIC2 pathway by visiting www.tic2.com, spelled www.tyk2.com. So let's go a little bit further. I remember I was listening to someone talk 
and they were discussing this, and I'm like, oh, well, you got to remember, when I was a resident, there weren't a lot of moving parts. You just had basal keratinocytes going to the surface, <laughs> and they got shed. Right. And we knew there were these T cells and B cells. Right. We didn't know about all these moving parts and cytokines. Right. And now they're talking about IL this and IL that and this receptor. Right. And then they said something about allosteric binding. What does that mean? Well, essentially, um, if you think about TIC2, it has two major domains. It has its catalytic domain, which mediates um, phosphorylation of target proteins, and that allows signaling downstream. But it has a regulatory domain. Many proteins have regulatory domains that, if altered through binding of a, a ligand like a drug, the regulatory domain can essentially cause the catalytic domain to malfunction. It doesn't allow it to, to, to phosphorylate targets. So it's an indirect approach to blocking a, a, an enzyme, a protein, uh, but not touching its catalytic domain. That's allosteric inhibition in a nutshell. And if you can do that, you stay away from domains of proteins that are shared across families. The catalytic domain of TIC2 is shared with the other JAK members and probably defines it. But so the, that, the would, help, that would help the selectivity? Yes, exactly. If you bind the allosteric domain, which isn't shared by other members of the family, um, you have a specific uh, targeted uh, area of the protein that isn't, isn't found in other JAK kinases, and therefore the drug will specifically bind TIC2 alone. So this is becoming like an aha moment when the light bulb goes on. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely uh, making a lot of sense. So I certainly appreciate that. So now let's pause for a message from our advertiser. Bristol-Myers Squibb is exploring trailblazing research and technology, which starts with illuminating the role of TIC2 in psoriasis. Start exploring the TIC2 pathway by visiting www.tic2.com, spelled www.tyk2.com. So, Bruce, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, I know you have a lot of the things you'd like to be doing, but I appreciate your time. And I guarantee you, your phone will be ringing again with another call from Jim Del Rosso saying, help, help me understand this. Right? You can have me on speed dial and the caller ID comes up and I accept it right away. I have two people on speed dial, you and Mark Lebel. I made the okay? cut. That's great. <laughs> Thanks Thank a you. lot. Yep, my pleasure. So if you are interested in previous editions of Derms and Conditions podcast, or this current one, which you can access down the line, all of them, go to fallclinical.health or go to Apple Podcasts or any place where you get your favorite shows. These are archived and you can go back and listen to any of these podcasts, including the one with Dr. Strober today. Thank you very much.